You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Uh, this series, The Family of God, is about the relationships we have with the people closest to us. And the last year or so has included, for many of us, more time spent with the people who are nearest to us. So it seemed like a good plan to directly address those relationships and provide some vision for them and to address particular issues that our pastors have noticed seem to be patterns. And last week, I tried very hard to help us see how antagonistic we can be towards each other. How since the Garden of Eden, there's a temptation to assign negative motives toward God and others, to overly trust our perceptions of reality, and to lack grace towards others. And today, we're going to be talking about the solution. And while there are all sorts of practicals and tools we could discuss that are helpful, today I want to talk about something underneath all of those things. And if you're interested in more of that, you can check out the Midweek Podcast this week for more. But today we're going to try to get underneath that. And there's something you can do to potentially make this sermon more uh, impactful. You don't have to do it if you'd rather not. Either way is fine. But if you'd like to do it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get out something to write with, either a pen or paper or something to type into. And I want you to write down the name of someone you hate. Someone you just absolutely cannot stand. Now, I can already see you trying to convince yourself that some other word would be better suited for that person, but don't play that game. It can be someone you severely dislike. That counts too, okay? Just write down the name of the person who popped into your mind when I said to write down the name of a person you hate. It may be because of something they've done to you, something they've not done for you, and maybe because of what they believe or what they stand for, it could be someone you know very well or someone you've only seen on TV. Depo. <laughs> Depo. It's messed up, Patrick. It's messed up. Better not be Dabo. Just kidding. Uh, I know that there is a uh, wide variety of categories represented and the names that are written down here. Some of them are just people you vehemently disagree with. Some are especially bothersome to you. Some have personally failed you. Some have done atrocious things to you that the wrath of God rightfully rests on. If you happen to be in that last category, you may need some nuance in how you apply what we talked about today. But our names are written down in stone because hatred is hatred. It doesn't lie. So think about all the things that you consider to be this person's fault. How much damage they have caused in the world or in your life. Think about the chaos they have contributed to. Think about what might be different about your life if they didn't have the failures and weaknesses that they have. Reflect on all of that rolling around in your mind and Many of those things could just be black and white. They are fair and accurate data points about that person that deal in reality. But like we said last week, some of that may be the product of perception, where the legend of their badness has blossomed as the story lost solid footing in your mind. We need the Spirit's help 
and clarity on all of that. But regardless, our action steps for today are the same. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, we'll start in verse 3. So Jesus talking and he says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So in Judaism at that time, it was considered honorable to forgive someone three times. They believed that showed you had a sufficiently forgiving spirit. Three strikes and you're out. But here, Jesus says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, like that's a bad day, right? Seven times in a day is a, is a very bad day. Seven times in one day would give me pause as to whether or not this person is actually repentant at all. And elsewhere, Jesus says that the fruit of our lives reveals whether or not we're actually repentant. So the genuineness of their repentance is a valid concern. But here, Jesus is not talking about the validity of someone's claim of repentance. Here, he is talking about forgiveness. And the point is crystal clear and wildly challenging. He said what he said, even if your brother or sister sins against you an inordinate amount of times in one single day, you must forgive him. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I love this response because think about uh, the things that Jesus has said to them so far. He's told them about being from heaven. He's claimed to be able to forgive sin, which Jewish people knew only God could do. Therefore, he's claiming to be God himself. He claimed that he would die and then raise from the dead. I mean, by this point, Jesus has said some outlandish sounding things to them. And not always, but often, when the disciples hear these things, their response is some form of, all right, okay, Jesus. But this, this is something the disciples sense will require more faith than what they currently possess. To forgive someone who hurts them and to do so in a way that could be accused of being reckless. Their response is, um, Jesus... If this is the case, I'm going to need some help here. You're going to have to do something because I don't have what it takes to do what you are saying I need to do. I don't have the resources. And notice the way Jesus answers them. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus agrees that they would need power they don't have to be able to forgive the way he called them to. Jesus also knows that can't come from us. And he says that we connect to this needed supernatural power by faith. And notice the point is not the amount of faith here. The point is the object of your faith. There's an old sermon illustration about two hikers that is helpful to understand what he's saying here. So imagine two hikers come to an impasse on a trail, and they will have to jump down from the path onto a rock 
to make their way forward. And there seems to be two different options. So hiker A looks at the first option and he says, that's the right rock. It's secure. I am sure of it. So he confidently jumps down onto that rock, but the rock gives way and the man and rock both tumble down the mountain. He had a lot of faith in the wrong object. And then hiker B looks over at the second rock and thinks, you know, I'm really not sure what's about to happen. I am not confident at all. This could end very badly for me, but it's my only hope. Eventually, he summons the courage to jump, and he lands on a sturdy rock that doesn't budge at all. And then he proceeds to make his way forward. So the decisive factor is not the amount of your faith. The decisive factor is the object of your faith. If you jump, the only thing that matters is whether or not it holds. And Jesus says the smallest amount of faith in the correct object, him, gives you power that on your own you do not possess. The power to forgive in ways most people would be unable to. Jesus taught that he came to heal the world. He came to redeem it from sin and rebellion against him, to free it from the grip of lies and deceit. He does this through shedding his own blood to forgive us. And it appears upon reading his words in the Gospels that a defining mark of the people united to him by grace will be how we forgive. He means to truly authoritatively free us from bitterness and resentment and anger. He thinks an uncommon supernatural forgiveness is actually possible for those of us in Christ. In fact, he expects it. He explains how it works elsewhere when the same subject is brought up. Flip over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times, which is basically a way of saying, forgive so much you couldn't really even keep account of it. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love keeps no record of wrongs. If you're a musical person, uh, I'm not much of one, but I, I have particularly enjoyed Wicked and Hamilton. Um, if you're a musical person, you know that uh, often there's a dialogue and then someone breaks out into a song. Well, with Jesus, it's usually dialogue, and then he breaks out into a story or parable to explain his point. Verse 23, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, I don't think you've spent a talent recently, so just to let you know, a talent was worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So this debt is absurd. 20 years of wages times 10,000. It'd be somewhere around $6 billion today. It's preposterously large and unpayable. 
Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. His entire family would now be enslaved for generations to pay for this debt. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is meant to describe you and I, by the way, or Peter, who's asking the question. Jesus is saying that God has forgiven a debt and our sin against him that could not possibly be measured. An absurd debt, an unthinkable sum. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius was about a day's wages for a laborer. So this was still a large debt, a hundred days wages. That's a lot of money. But the point is, it's nothing compared to what this man was just forgiven for moments earlier. He's fresh off of his knees begging for his life and that of his family. He had no hope outside of the king's undeserved forgiveness. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does that sound familiar to you? Because it's the exact same line he just spoke to the king. The only difference is that this guy's debt is way less than the debt he owed to the king. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus creates a hyperbolic scenario as he often does to prove a point. He describes a situation so outlandish that no one thinks it could actually happen. And he is not teaching that if we forgive others, that will cause God to forgive us. That would be workspace righteousness. But what he's doing is he's showing how there's no way that a man can be weeping in front of a king, begging for his life because of a debt he can't possibly pay, and experience being forgiven and get his life back, get his family back yet then turn and have someone say the exact same phrase to him, but hold that man's debt against him. It couldn't possibly happen. Jesus says that there will be a necessary connection between our being forgiven and our willingness to forgive. If we've truly received it, we will be enabled to freely give it. To see yourself as a beggar before God, unable to make things right with him, to plead for your life and to see him forgive you in Christ, welcome you into his family, eliminate your debt through Jesus' work on the cross. 
that necessarily enables us to become forgiving people. Forgiving in spirit, understanding in spirit, gracious in spirit, giving the benefit of the doubt as a life posture. I notice a fascinating dynamic here because Jesus is such a master storyteller. The servant, who does he think he's putting in prison? He thought he was locking up the guy who owed him the debt. He thought he was forcing him to make right the wrong he had done, repay the debt he owed. But ironically, in the process, he put himself in jail. This is what unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment do to us. We think we are making the other pay for what they've done, but in reality, we end up the ones who are trapped. You are jailing someone who well deserves it inside of your heart, but actually, you're the one in jail. I'm sure you've heard the quote that says, uh, refusing to forgive someone is like drinking rat poison and waiting on the rat to die. I just want to tell you, I've seen this play out I don't know how many times now. I've seen people be so angry with each other holding a grudge, nursing the grudge. They think about it all the time. But the thing is, the person they are mad at oftentimes never thinks about them. They never think about them. They are free. You are trapped. I'd guess some of us in the room wrote down a name, and it's a person we think about often. We think about what they did to us. We think about how hurtful it was. That person is an ongoing presence in our thought lives. But that person, they don't think about us at all. So who is free and who is trapped? The thing about anger and bitterness and resentment is that they appear to help stabilize you. When your insides are burning, they feel tactile, something hard you can grab hold of to keep your footing. We just can't see that they are prison bars. Unforgiveness and grudges have a power to entangle us in a way that seems hard to break free from. But it's also true that forgiveness and graciousness and kindness and charity have a power to bring healing. And I've also seen this play out. So for example, a married couple comes to meet with me and their marriage is a mess. They're so angry with each other, so hurt, so cold and hardened toward one another. I can literally see their anger and pain and bitterness and the pain in their bodies and in their faces. Their muscles are tense. Their brows are furrowed. Their jaws are clenched. It physically manifests itself. That's how strong and powerful this stuff is. They're both miserable as they hold the other sins against them. The grudge is toxic, literally poisoning their relationship. But if just one of them, through faith, will soften towards the other, sometimes just a little bit, and say something like, I'm sorry for the pain that I've caused you. 
and I forgive you for the pain that you've caused me. Will you forgive me? More often than not, the other person almost can't let the first finish before they say, no, 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 I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. I can't believe I let it go this far. Please forgive me. They might even start making out right in front of me. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, kindness, they bring healing. Just the smallest bit of faith in the right person has a lot of power. And some of the names on the list in this room, I would imagine, are names that you've personally given a lot to. People that you've devoted time and energy and resources to that have hurt or betrayed you. And I can't help but think about how Jesus can relate to that. Like he poured his life into 12 disciples. He ate and laughed and slept near them on whatever ground they could find. He heard them snore. Do you realize that? He smelled them after a hot Middle Eastern day. He put up with their eccentricities and bothersome quirks, all the while knowing they would scatter when he was arrested. They wouldn't stick up for their boy. They would just abandon him. Knowing one of them would betray him, Jesus knew the whole time that Judas, whom he protected and taught and loved, would backstab him, sell him out for 30 pieces of silver, betray him with a kiss of all things. You know what Jesus did for all of them right before he was arrested? He washed their feet. And Peter, that mouthy Peter, he would go from cutting off a Roman soldier's ear in response to Judas's betrayal to denying Jesus three times within mere hours. Even after Jesus told him he was going to do it, Peter still, to save his own hide, denied knowing his Lord in the hour of his deepest need. Luke 22 records the moment that Peter denies Jesus for the third time. And uh, Jesus is standing in the high priest's house while his murder is being arranged. And it says, as soon as Peter starts speaking the words to deny his Lord, the rooster crows and it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then he goes away to weep bitterly. Can you imagine receiving that look? Can you imagine the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt? I mean, that's the kind of moment that haunts someone for the rest of their life. Do you remember what Jesus did for Peter after he raised from the dead? He cooked him breakfast. Cooked him breakfast while he graciously forgave and reinstated the humiliated Peter in front of the other disciples. I sat in my office tearing up one day this week as I was preparing for this sermon because there are people in my life who I have not fully forgiven. People who have hurt me, who have lied to me and about me. People who have betrayed me. And if I'm honest with you, I sometimes want them to pay for it. I sometimes want for people to find out what they did and I want them to be exposed for who they really are and I want to be vindicated. So I relate very much to the disciples when they respond to Jesus by saying, 
increase our faith, please. Because when someone really hurts you, and I mean really hurts you, I think I'm incapable and I know I'm unmotivated to forgive. And I know for sure the last thing I want to do is serve them, comfort them, reassure them, cook them breakfast. But you want to know the one that gets me the most of all? At this point where this happens, Jesus has been betrayed and abandoned by his friends. He's been wrongly accused of a crime, mercilessly whipped and beaten, humiliated, mocked, spit upon, a crown of thorns thrust on his head. He's hardly recognizable, flesh turned inside out all over his body, burning in agony. His hands are nailed to the outer beam of a cross, his feet nailed below. He can barely breathe while he dies of asphyxiation. And you know what he says? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them? Forgive them? For they know not what they do? Even writhing and suffocating on the cross, Jesus is able to extend unreasonable graciousness to the people who have done it to him. With the limited words his body had left to give, he chose to use 10 of them to petition heaven for their forgiveness and to charitably assert that they actually didn't know what they were doing. Presumably, they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were executing a blasphemous, deranged criminal who claimed to be God, who would lead people astray and was bad for the world. They thought they were executing God's judgment and it turns out they were. It just wasn't on him. It was on them. They were acting off of a tragic false perception that we balk at now, but seemed right to them. And Jesus spoke over them. They know not what they do. I can't help but think that some of the people who have hurt me don't fully realize the damage that they have done. They don't get it. They don't see it. They don't fully know. As a pastor, I've heard a good many heartbreaking stories. I get a different sort of perspective on relationship hurt and conflict than others do sometimes. Many people only get one side of a story. At times, I've been able to truly glimpse the complexity of families, of relationships, of communities. I've gotten more of a bird's eye view where I talk to multiple people involved, all with different data points about the situation. And I'll know that he feels this way, but he hasn't told her that. And she feels this way, but she hasn't told him that. I'll know the, the mother thinks this is what happened. The daughter thinks that is what happened. There's a real sense that they don't know what they are doing to each other. Everyone says there are two sides to every story. No one actually believes it. No one believes it. I've learned if I haven't heard both sides of the story, I have no idea what actually happened. I have no idea. I found that to be shockingly 
true at times. In these chaotic situations, everyone is usually hurt. And often it feels like there is no way forward through the hurt. But this does not have to be so for followers of Jesus. It certainly wasn't the case for him. He was full of truth and grace. As we said last week, he told the truth. When someone sinned against him, he called it for what it was. When someone was burdened by something that wasn't sinful, he lifted that burden off of them. He had perfect vision that we don't have, but he gave us his spirit to help us get there. And he was full of grace. When he needed to rebuke, he rebuked, but he did so not to win points or superiority, but to swallow the offense with grace by actually forgiving it, by resolving it so that it doesn't continue to linger and throw things off, but instead so he can sit around a breakfast fire with Peter and cook fish for him. So he could look him in the eyes without instinctively turning away. I don't know about you guys, but I am weary of nursing my hurt. I am tired of rehearsing the worst things people have said or done to me. I am over our culture that trains me to be addicted to outrage. There is no life there. There is no joy in cuddling up to bitterness every single night. I've seen how much it can ruin. It's wrecked some of the closer relationships I've ever had. And I'm disinterested in that ever happening again as far as it depends on me. Jesus calls us to trade our bitterness and anger for something far better. He calls us to an entirely new way to approach our relationships and the potential for hurt they bring. Consider Jesus' words from Luke chapter six. This will be on the screen. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judge not, condemn not, forgive. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Let me tell you what comes to my mind when I hear that description. It's a little silly, but it's what I think of. Have you ever had the joy of going to an ice cream shop before? And let's say you order a double scoop. If you're right, like me, you get butter pecan, right? Double scoop of butter pecan. Because it's wonderful. And when they hand you the cone, your eyes get really big. And you think, there must be some misunderstanding here. Because it's an inappropriately large scoop of ice cream. It's borderline an injustice. Like, I, didn't, I did not pay enough money for this. The amount of ice cream I received does not in any way match the dollars that I paid. This is not right, and it's not fair, and I don't deserve this. Judge not, condemn not, forgive. 
good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. What if you and I decided today that we're going to be big ice cream scoop people? What if we decided today that because of Jesus, we are going to be more gracious than we should be, more forgiving than we should be, more positive in our thoughts about other people's motives than we should be? That if we're going to be wrong, we're going to be wrong in that direction. What if we decided that we wanted there to be times in our lives where someone comes up to us and says, you are overdoing it with your forgiveness. You're too forgiving. And we say, I know. And they say, but he doesn't deserve it. And we say, he absolutely does not deserve it. And they say, what she did to you was really wrong and it had to hurt you. And we say, it was really wrong. And it did, in fact, hurt me. And some days I feel like I have only a very small amount of faith. But it just so happens my faith is in the right person. And just the smallest amount of faith in the right person has a power that's hard to describe. And it sustains me. What if we were promiscuous with our forgiveness like that? In an ungracious culture that encourages offense-taking at every turn, what if we could be wronged and be silent? I'm not talking about the big things that need to be rebuked. I'm talking about the endless little things. What if we could tap into the well of grace and simply overlook an offense? Don't post about it on Twitter. Just get over it. Man, you'd be so much freer if you could do this and the world would be a lot more clear-headed and man, it needs all that it can get. What if we committed to aggressively assume the best of others? That would stick out like a sore thumb in a culture of cynical sinners trained to assume the worst. We give the benefit of the doubt. We're more gracious than anyone else would be. And I'm not talking about being naive here. We know what we're doing. This is not letting people walk all over us. That's what happens when people feel like they don't have power. They don't have a voice to do anything about it. But forgiveness is about having power, having supernatural power through faith to no longer hold someone's sin against them. You're doing it on purpose. Not because they deserve it, but because we're trying to heal the world. This certainly won't work for everyone here, but as, as an exercise for some of you in getting to that place, what if you tried to come up with the most gracious and charitable story you can possibly imagine that would explain what happened to the person you wrote down? Why they are the way that they are why they became the kind of person who would do what they did or not do what they didn't do or who would believe what they do. It doesn't excuse a single thing they've done wrong. It's just an exercise. See if you can come up with a story that explains them a little better to you. Try to get in the mindset of their defense attorney. I think things like these are important for us to wrestle with because 
unforgiveness rots the human soul. Resentment and bitterness eat us alive from the inside. They are so toxic and we end up the ones who are trapped. But through our forgiveness, we might just be able to bring a little healing to a divided and angry world. I read a story recently about a Christian college professor in his 70s. And he told a story about how when he was 16, he was out driving his car drunk with a few of his friends. And he wrecked and presumably totaled his car. He was absolutely mortified to call his dad and tell him what happened because of the rightful consequences coming his way. So he called his dad, and the first thing his dad wanted to know was, was he okay? And the kid made it home that night and and just wept, just wept in his father's study. He was embarrassed and ashamed and guilty. At the end of the ordeal that night, out of all of the possible appropriate outcomes his father could have instituted, the father looked his son in the eyes and he said, how about tomorrow we go find you a new car? And I'll be the first to admit that if my kid does that at 16, I'm not sure what my response will be. And I am not saying that his response was the right response. But that father must have been listening to the Holy Spirit in that moment with that particular son. Because the 70-year-old son now looks back in time and he says, that's the moment where I became a Christian. That's the moment where I truly understood grace and it changed him forever. That was the moment he realized what it was like to be forgiven in a way he did not deserve. A lifetime of showing grace to others came from one extraordinary moment of grace shown to him. So I don't know what name you wrote down. I don't know what they've done or why your feelings are so stirred against them. I don't know what power they hold over you. And I don't know what particular action steps the Holy Spirit may call you to with that person. But here's the thing. Becoming the kind of person Jesus talked about, a person with a forgiving spirit, is so much bigger than what to do about that name. Because there will always be other names. There will be other causes of bitterness, other temptations to anger, probably this week, right? There will be other names. So this is far more about you than it is about them. This is no one-time act of obedience. This is a change to the core of who you are. So as we part ways today, I would simply ask, do you remember the debt that Jesus released you from? Do you know that he went to the cross for you, not just for those you can't stand? Can you see yourself as Peter 
ashamed and humiliated by your sin, approaching the Savior you just denied very apprehensively, only to be warmly welcomed to the glow of a campfire breakfast? Can you see yourself as one of the violent crowd beneath Jesus' cross over whom he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what is necessary for you to become a person with a forgiving spirit. For you to be free from the prison of bitterness, to become a source of healing, there is no other way. You are not called to give anything you haven't already graciously received. If you start there, the rest will take care of itself. You will soften while plugged into the superpower of grace. You'll receive power that didn't come from you. And you'll join Jesus in his mission to forgive the sins of the world and you'll be well prepared for the names that you don't even know about yet. Let's pray.